Hey there. We are taking the next few weeks off from recording new shows here at Mission Forward, but we still have a ton of great content planned for you this summer. Every other Thursday through September 1st, tune in for a reboot of one of my favorite Mission Forward episodes to date with some fresh insights to help you grow as a communicator and a social impact professional. And on the off weeks, swing by for a shorter reflection on communications and life with my weekly Finding the Words essay. Mark your calendars now and spend your lunch breaks with me every Thursday this summer. Together, we will move from mission to impact. And now, on to today's Reboot episode. Today, I bring you a repeat performance of my conversation with Mia Birdsong and Natalie Burke, two amazing women and incredible guides in my life who have made it part of their life's work to use communications as a tool for social justice. Mia, as a pathfinder, storyteller, a community curator, steadily engages the leadership and wisdom of people experiencing injustice to chart new visions of American life. She's also the author of How We Show Up and host of her own six-part podcast called More Than Enough. Here are a few things I learned in chatting with Mia. That community is a verb. It doesn't happen passively, but requires action, commitment, and investment to be in community. And while we might have a shared convention of community, when we use the word, our differences begin to rise to the surface. So in this episode, we take on the concept of community and the challenges and lack of clarity in the words we use. We're going to talk about how a culture of self-reliance and a system of oppression have become hurdles for forming community. We're going to talk about a lot, including the differences between independence and interdependence. But now, more than ever, why community matters. Stay tuned. I'll see you on the other side. Mia, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. I am so excited to be able to have this conversation with you and with Natalie about community, because as folks who are listening to this season know, that is what we are focused in on. And I can think of no one better to talk about community with and what that means and how we reclaim it to, to your to the book that you wrote, How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendships, and Community how we reclaim that community post-COVID in this, in this strange time that we are in, and the opportunity I think we have to reclaim it. So, Mia, I wonder if you could get us started by just giving us a bit of background on you and your work, and then we'll get into our conversation from there. Sure. <laughs> this is always a funny question to answer. So I, th- I feel like the work that I do is about our social contracts, and how we like illuminating the fact that they are misaligned and then thinking about how we realign them. And I think about social contracts, both in terms of our systems and institutions and what they owe us um, as citizens or residents, right? And then what's required of us in terms of how we interact with them, make sure they know what it is we want and need, um, how we hold them accountable to giving us the things we want and need. So there's that piece. And then I think about what we owe each other. Um, 
as family, as community members, as neighbors, um, as friends, as social animals, how we are being in relationship with each other and how we be in, in relationship with each other in ways that support our well-being and affirm our humanity. Earlier today, my my daughter was asking me who we were interviewing today. She likes to listen to the podcast and try to make as much sense of it as an 11-year-old can. And she said, who are you interviewing today? And, and what does she do? Or what does he do? And I said, oh, we're talking to Mia today. And Mia works and, and, and thinks about and researches community. And she said, oh, like creating spaces where everyone feels they belong. Oh, <laughs> yes. See, the babies know. The babies know. You got it. You got it. I feel like so much of, of what I think about is how do we create a culture of belonging, right? Whether it is in, as a nation or in our organizations or in our, you know, cities or neighborhoods, like what is um, required in order to create a community or a, a culture of belonging? Yeah. Um, yeah. That is so beautiful. So let's start with words because it's something that's important to the two of you. And this word community that gets thrown around all the time, it means something different to everyone. When you think community, you've already started to talk on this, but think a little bit more about what that means when you say it or when you hear it. And then Natalie, I'd love you to to, to chime in there too. You know, it's a word that has clearly been um, co-opted to imply something that is a lie, right? When I think about, um, you know, community on Facebook, for example, I'm like, these millions of people don't know each other. <laughs> like, that's not a community. Um, and I think, and I, but I think when it's used well, it is still context um, specific, right? Like community can mean multiple things. And, you know, the challenge I think with language in general, and I'll speak to English because that's what I speak um, and understand, is that there's a, you know, there's a certain amount of assumption that we have to make when we're communicating with people about in, using words. Ideally, the context that I'm talking in helps people understand what it is I mean when I say community, when I say it. And I think the the flaw there, right, for anybody who does any kind of narrative or communications work is that um, people are are understanding things in a conventional way, and we might mean them in a different way. And I think this is like, you know, with the word family, for example, right? There are community contexts in which family means very different things. Like, I know for queer folks in the like 60s, 70s, and 80s, like saying somebody, that somebody was family was just like a code way of saying that they're gay. I think that, you know, some people, when you say family, they think about a heterosexual couple who has, you know, biological children and lives in a house with a picket fence and a dog and all that. For some folks, it is how we refer to our closest loved ones, right? Whether or not they are legally or biologically related to us, um, or we've chosen them as family. So, you know, I think one of the things that we do as communicators and people who are interested in story and communications and narrative is try to do the the both and of using words in the way that we mean them, but also trying to like provide enough context to help shift the way that people are understanding them. 
I love that. And I think it, it resonates for me on a, a lot of different levels. So, you know, even this piece around family, as a side note, my family is from Jamaica. If I'm speaking to someone, I'm a Papa Sai girl. What's I up, had a, this thing about the. I'm yes. telling you this yes, thing sister. about language. I almost asked you before we started. This thing about language. There's a thing to it that's also very cultural. And so when people with a West Indian accent say "family," they are meaning other West Indians, right? So it's <laughs> yes. important to have context for the language that we're using, and. It's interesting because when I have gone to work in geographic areas, might be a county, a city, a town, uh, the word community usually comes up within the four, first four minutes. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that I say is, everybody stop common language. When you say community, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. about who are you whom talking are, about? About whom you're speaking, right? And, and let's get really clear about that because that then becomes the focus of our attention and our energy. So for me, this idea of community is a reflection of people who choose to be in relationship that elevates connection from being transactional. Mm. To, that's what community is really about. And I think we've I think we've lost that, some because of the transient nature of our society, mm -hmm. uh, and absolutely because of the focus on independence. Mm -hmm. I think um, in a lot of ways, it has undermined the concept and the understanding of what community truly is. Absolutely. So for me, that's, that's really what community is about, though. It's a choice to be in relationship that is above transaction. And that means that it's for the long haul and it is about relate, relating to one another. That's a very I different thing. Totally. And I think like part of what the way it's been like weaponized is to like people, you know, someone will say, well, what the community wants is X, Y, and Z. And you're like, they're, ta they're talking about a particular like part of a geography and not anybody else. And it's a way to exclude without articulating that exclusion um, or to include like, you know, a very specific group of people without articulating that inclusion. And yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to just think about how do we get more specific without like having to re-articulate and redefine things, you know, constantly. Um, and this is part of, you know, again, I think this is part of the dance that like as communicators, we think a lot about this, like, you know, can I say this thing in a way that resonates and is clear, but like doesn't use too many words? Well, there's a thing that I've, I've spoken with a lot of groups about, and particularly when I'm working with institutions, agencies and organizations that consider themselves as quote unquote, working in the community. Mm -hmm. What they don't recognize is when they sit and they say, well, when you're out in the community, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you're saying those people over there. Exactly. Like you're, you're not, you're not, part, not of it. part of it. Right. And so my, my question is, are you not comfortable saying our community? Because mm -hmm. if you aren't, if you can't go to the quote unquote, the community meeting on mm -hmm. Thursday at 630, where the food is not quite hot and not quite cold <laughs> and say from the front of the room, hey, our community, without people giving you the side eye and throwing shade, you have work to do because you're not in relationship. Yes, totally. And I think that so often people who are who are who are situated in a geography and are providing 
services or whatever. They're doing something. They're they're taking some action to provide something for the for a group of people in that geography. Um, they don't do the work of building relationship, right? Um, they're like, I'm going to go home to my actual community. I just work here. Oh my goodness, that's one of the first things I ask people. Do you live in this zip code? I want to know. You're here saying you're investing in the capacity of this place yeah. or whatever it is. Do you live here? And I think you don't have to live there, but I you think don't. There, but there is definitely a way to be in relationship with people yep. and to do the work of and this is this is part of our challenge too is that we, you know, I think about this in terms of um you know, conversations I had with like doctors and epidemiologists about the COVID vaccine and how the the lack of trust that exists for so many communities um, when it comes to the government or public health or the pharmaceutical companies, I mean, that one I'm fine with, um, or medical, you know, just medical people. And that all of a sudden there was something that all of a sudden, like we needed people to trust those systems and institutions, but the relationships hadn't been built. And I'm like, yeah, y'all need to do the work five years ago. And then I was like, so knowing that we're going to have another pandemic, like, what are you doing now as you're like, you know, rolling out vaccines and trying to figure out how to be in relationship with people? Like, what are you doing right now? It can't be like, we want you to get this vaccine. It's, it has to be like, what is it that you need from us? How can we be like in relationship with you? Um, what, let me, let me hear about what, let me hear your story. Let me hear about what your community wants and needs, what your vision is and how we can participate in that. And then, and then like actually do something. And then when there's another pandemic and we need you to take a vaccine, like it's a whole different situation. Mia, I have used your book as a call to action for nearly every organization we work with because we just flat out ask them. We say, how are you showing up? What does that look like? Prove it to me, right? Because there's a big difference in what I'm hearing you both talk about. The idea of being in community, that there is a giving and a receiving, that there is a social connection being made versus the transactional charity that is incredibly dangerous and harmful to people who believe they are in community, but then truly are thinking about it through a charitable lens. Yes. And would love to hear you talk about that. I mean, <laughs> I ain't got no time for anybody who's <laughs> anywhere for a charity. Um, I'm like, nobody, nobody needs nobody's charity. Um, I mean, part of the, that it is this comes with, I mean, it comes with so much baggage, but I think one of the things that is missing um, from a charitable approach is a recognition that, you know, if your work is feeding people, right, like literally food, um, that you are, you're, you're providing something that people are entitled to, like you're not doing nobody no favors, and and that the work that you're doing ideally is correcting like hundreds of years of historical wrong, right? You're not, it's not, um, you're not doing something nice. <laughs> you're not doing something to like win points with your God. You're doing something that is meant to like balance a scale that has been off for a long time. And I, th you know, I think people often engage in that kind of work because they want to feel good about themselves. And like, let's be clear. Like, I want to feel good about myself. Like I want to, I want to be making choices that are in alignment with my values and, and living inside of my integrity. Like that's what makes me feel good about myself, but not in a way that's like, I'm going to pat myself on the back because now this person has a sandwich has like one meal. Yeah. Um, like that's not interesting to me. Right. 
And it, and what it does is it actually reinforces the existing, the status quo. It reinforces the power dynamics. It keeps things as they are. It keeps people um, uh, disenfranchised. It keeps people um, from being able to um, walk through the world in based on their own self-determination. Um, and it keeps people who have power, it, it allows them to maintain their power by, while making them feel good about the fact that they gave somebody a sandwich. And the issues you're talking about are hundreds year old issues, right? They are not going to be solved in the near term. You talk about it as being generationally, right? You've got to think really long term about the actions we take now and how it will make an effect down the road. But I'm still going to ask you both to think about what have we seen in the last year that has either helped or deterred us from moving toward a more balanced community and society? And let me clarify so I feel like this work is generational, but the work that I'm talking about is culture shift is like the eradication of white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism, right? That's going to take a minute. <laughs> that does not mean there are not actions that we can take immediately that have um, material impact on people's real lives and that allow us to evolve as humans and become more liberatory in our thinking and feeling and our behavior. So like, I want to make sure that I'm, that nobody is going to walk away being like, Oh, <laughs> we, we don't have to do nothing now. Yeah, <laughs> It's going to yeah. be like, you know, in a hundred years. No, 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 no. Right. No, we hear you. And we reinforce that, that there is a <laughs> lot that the folks who are listening that, that everyone that, that we can and should be doing right now. One of the things that I feel like the the pandemic did was just like Adrienne Marie Brown talks about like pulling back the veil, right? Like it just has made um, a truth about our connectedness and our independence about the inherent uncertainty of human life or of any life of anything. Um, about our vulnerability, it just ma has made it like very clear to, and, you know, there are a lot of people who that, that awareness was, they had that before, but it's made it much more clear to more of us. And I think that the, the landscape of the pandemic um, was one that so when, you know, so when George Floyd was murdered and we're recording this the day after the anniversary of his murder, um, when the pandemic, you know, like, I, I feel like there all of a sudden we, we had already been kind of made aware of the ways in which um, we're connected, that a virus can travel across the world in a matter of weeks makes it very clear that we're deeply connected. Um, we also were being made made aware that like you know if a farm worker can't safely harvest food like we ain't gonna eat um if nurses don't have the equipment they need to keep themselves safe right then they're like sacrificing their lives to take care of us so there's this way in which we were just made much more aware of our of our interconnectedness and i feel like that laid um, a particular kind of ground so that when george floyd was murdered as compared to like all of the other times that we have witnessed black death there was a a greater sense of connection to that from people who hadn't previously felt any connection to Black people being murdered. 
Um, and I think that the outrage and the fury and trauma of that was felt much more widely than it would have been if it hadn't happened during the pandemic. You know, and I think that the, you know, as as more of us get vaccinated, as municipalities and states start to pretend that the pandemic's over and we can go out and like, you know, go back to normal, I'm doing air quotes. I think that there will be a, there's a pull, right, to what's familiar. But I do think that more that that there there there's a there's a greater number of people who are now their eyes have been opened and they are now um, part of the work to create justice in this country and and they weren't here before um, and I'm grateful that they're here and of course it makes me sad the way that they had to get here but that's always true. I think it, as I was listening to you, a couple of things really jumped out for me. I think during the pandemic, people disconnected from some things that I don't even know that we knew we were so connected to. You know, I think about even um, my clothes, my, my um, you know, the way that I would dress on a daily basis and the fact that I now have a uniform of black yoga pants from Target. I have 23, 23 of them now. This is all I do from the waist down type of Leopard thing. print yoga pants. That's what I have. And, and there it is, right? I mean, we, we disconnected from our offices and this idea of, of an office and, and sort of being locked and tethered and connected to this space. And we've figured out new ways to connect. And I think some of those things are positive and some of those things are absolutely negative. And I think the long-term consequences about all of that remain to be seen. But in this, this idea of connection um, certainly has to do with relationship, but also connects to this piece about interdependence. Mm. So the brain scientists say that human beings are hardwired for fairness, and they believe that it has to do with how early humans lived in small groups that were highly interdependent. And my survival was dependent upon your survival. And so for that part of our brain to fire up, interdependence may well be a bit of a prerequisite. And what have we done? We've actually designed a society that is increasingly independent, not interdependent. We've actually thought of interdependence as being a negative thing. Uh, we've put people down who choose to live in that way and in some way try to make it seem as though they are weak or less than. And in fact, one of the reflections I've had that I shared with Carrie before, during the pandemic, I've never been a DoorDash kind of person. It's just not my thing because I travel a lot and I'm doing other things. That's not a way for me to think of food. We've now created a society in a situation where I am able to have food, a basic human need, without ever interacting with any human being who is involved with that food. I don't know who owned the land where it was planted, who planted it, who watered it, who harvested it, who processed it, who transported it, who cooked it and prepared it. I don't even know the person who drove the car to bring it and leave it for contactless delivery on my doorstep. So we have dismantled even basic human needs and pulled ourselves out of relationship with one another. And we ask ourselves the question, why then isn't humanity firing up for equity and fairness. 
So my question for you, and you know, I, when I think about what you've written and the things about which you've spoken, what does it take for us to find a new form of interdependence in today's society? And what could it look like? Mm. I love that so much. <laughs> so I don't actually think that, I mean, we, we've created a society that ha, that allows us the facade of, in, of independence. Because as you just said, right, in your, in your example, um, you can have an entire meal show up on your doorstep and never interact with any mm-hmm. human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just because we've made all the people invisible, right? They're still there, um, but you just don't have to see them. Yep. or talk to them mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. ask no them relationship or make sure that they are okay. Any of those things. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. we've created a society that allows us to pretend that we're independent. And I think that part of what's necessary, I mean, I think there are a few things that could happen. Right. I mean, one is I think that, you know, we are, we are seeing a, um, I, I I hesitate to call it a pandemic of loneliness, <laughs> um, but we're we're definitely seeing a lot of mental health issues, um, both like obvious mental health issues and then things that kind of look like other things that I think are probably just mental health issues um, that are because we as because we as human beings are social animals and we're hardwired for connection and we don't have that um, we're our psyches are being damaged. And um, I think at some point, many of us are going to notice and be like, I'm not happy, <laughs> right? And and people are will recognize, you know, some folks recognize that like the things that our culture tells us will make you happy, right? Stuff, accumulation, hoarding, um, consumption, um, you know, people get to a place in their lives and they're like, this is not actually, this is not happiness. This is numbness, you know, and this is where I think is, this is what I think is the generational work, right? I think there is a growing number of people who are, who are, um, developing that awareness and then they're like, well, what do I do? And they're feeling their way toward figuring out like what happiness actually is. And, and that like, I mean, we all know this, right? It's not stuff it's relationships, right? There's that like cliche thing about like, you know, people on their deathbed being asked about, you know, what they regret or what they want. And they're like, I, you know, I wish I'd bought less stuff and spent more time with people. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. Right. That is, and it's a cliche because it's like deeply true. So I think some of us are beginning to realize that. I think the other thing, and this is why this was, you know, the pandemic served as an interesting moment for this is that um, tragedy is one of the things that brings us together, right? Um, I think about, so there's this, there's this social scientist, Daniel Aldrich, who I've been a fan of for a really long time. Um, I met him and I was <laughs> such a nerd. And I'm, I don't know how many- Your people, face just lit up when you said his name, by the way. <laughs> I, don't, I know. I don't know how many fans he actually has, um, but I was really excited to meet him. <laughs> um, and part of what he studies is um, social capital and disaster. And um, he's, you know, his, one of the things he's found in his research is that the people, the communities that recover from 
disasters and he's looked at, at Katrina, he's looked at, you know, tsunamis, nuclear disasters, all kinds of things. The communities that cover, recover the fastest are the ones that have the most deep social capital. Um, it's not the people who are wealthy. It's not where the first responders show up um, first. It is like the people who know each other. And we see in moments of tragedy that people feel like thrown together with each other, right? I mean, I think about um, Hurricane Sandy and like all of the, I was not in New York when that was happening, but all of the like pictures that showed up in my Facebook feed of like, you know, people putting power strips outside their houses, like with extension cords so that people like who didn't have power could come and charge their phones. You know, I think about like all the stuff after Katrina, all the stuff after 9-11, like we just, when there is disaster, we um, throw our lot in together and we take care of each other. And I think there is a way in which we do that when there's celebration as well, right? I think that people, you know, I don't sport, like I don't watch no sports or anything, but I think there's a way in which like... <laughs> I think there's a way in which people who are fans of a team, um, like the cell, like when your team wins, like you all of a sudden with all the people on your side of the stadium or whatever, like all y'all are celebrating together and you're like best friends and giving each other hot dogs or peanuts or whatever. Um, I don't know how that works, but that's like Mardi Gras New Orleans, you know, what you just said. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. So, mm -hmm. yes. Thank you. <laughs> Celebration. Like like the people who are celebrating alongside of you all of a sudden are or one of my favorites. Um, so when I lived in New York, um, the New York Marathon would go by the end of my block. And every year I would go out and um, cheer on complete strangers. And I would cry because it was so moving to me that I was standing with all of these other people cheering on strangers. Um, and I, it's one of my favorite feelings to just like be in um, collective like affirmation and celebration of other human beings with a group of people. Um, so I think there are all of these ways in which something taps into what is um, hardwired in us, what is what is like part of who we are as human beings. And I think the the key for us is to hold on to that and is to um, lean into it and is to notice that we have this longing um, in our hearts to be in relationship with each other, to be connected to each other and to like take the leap, right? Which in a society that tells us that strength and success and happiness come from doing it yourself and um, accumulating stuff and blah, blah, blah. Like to take the leap and be like, my happiness does not lie there. It lies with other people. You know, when you say that, it comes to the thing that I wanted to ask you next, which is about, and I, I do feel like this is foundational to all of this, it's about how we choose to value one another within a context of who we are and our experiences. Mm -hmm. And I've been racking my brain to try to figure out what does it take to shift how we value people within their own humanity, within their own identities? with regard to how they show up, because it is devaluing one another that leads us down this path of racism, classism, sexism, xenophobia, and all of the other ones that you can heap onto the mm -hmm. list. So the question for me becomes, what becomes necessary in this society in order for people to value one another at a very basic, fundamental level? I think that... 
it requires us to value ourselves differently. And we live in a deeply capitalistic, market-driven mm-hmm. culture yeah. mm-hmm. that has socialized us to um, to believe that our humanity is like our value as people is predicated on our value to the market. Because um, capitalism is concerned with individual productivity. And that's evolved to us just being like valuing general productivity, right? Like I think about how virtuous some of us feel when we lose sleep in order to get things done. Or just the very idea that vacation or time off is something that you have to like do a bunch of work in order to be like to earn it. Yeah. So we live in a society where our humanity is predicated on our productivity. And we all like, I think, I mean, I feel like I absolutely, even though I feel like I've thought about this and studied it for many years, like I'm still excavating though that deep belief and that deep socialization from myself. And I think that, that the way toward us valuing other people, right? Like part of what, ha- and I'm gonna see if I can articulate this. I think part of what happens in that is that if I value myself based on um, how productive I can be, and, and and all of that is kind of wrapped up in a um, scarcity model that says like, in order for me to get what I need, right? Like somebody else has to lose, right? Like I got to win. And I also, and I'm like, and there's also like urgency around it. So I better hurry up and get all the things and hoard them. Mm-hmm. And you can't have none. And also if I have it all, probably you want to steal it. So like all of a sudden we're in competition with everybody. And if I'm viewing myself that way, I'm just like, like, I can't, I I can't fully value everyone's inherent humanity until I'm valuing my own. And if I think I'm in competition with you, then I'm also trying, I'm seeing you as like my enemy in some way. And there's a way in which I devalue you. I turn you into um, a caricature of, you know, a bad person who's trying to get my shit. I hope that made sense. I feel like there are a lot of layers in there. It does. You know? And, you know, and I think ultimately, like, all of the forms of discrimination that exist based on identity are just kind of pathways for that, um, for that thinking to manifest. Um, And we just, like, figure out a whole bunch of ways in which we are going to not be the other and um, be separate from and be part of something else, right? So, I mean, I think about I think about how white supremacy is, and whiteness, just as it exists in the United States, right? Like all of these folks from a wide variety of European countries came to America and bargained away their languages, their ways of celebrating their ways of their rituals their food ways like all of this beautiful culture they bargained it away for whiteness and the power and privilege that comes with that and there's such tremendous loss not just of 
like culture, but of like actual identity, right? Like, I'm like, white folks aren't, I'm like, that's not a, that's a, that's a like shield and a weapon, like whiteness. Well, the la- if you could have been a part of a conversation that I had earlier with a group, and one of the things that I raised for them, because they were talking about white allyship and so on, and I posed the question, what's whiteness? And who are you? And who would you be without it, it? It was a moment. It was a moment. And I've asked that question and had it turned back to me where someone said, well, what's blackness? Oh, see, I said, not, well, how much? equivalents. Hello. Though, they are not equivalents. And my question was, and how much time do you have? Mm-hmm. Because I can I, I can riff on that for the next six hours straight. I'm very clear. And how those two things relate to one another and how they define each other and who I am within the context of my many identities. I'm, I'm really clear because this society and this world makes sure I'm aware of it every single day. So I've been processing blackness for as long as I can remember. And part of it is that whiteness is like part of the existence of whiteness was it was a way to create a culture of belonging that was specifically about exclusion and assimilation. Yeah. So you got to, you could become white, right? Like I think, you know, the most recently it's like the Italians and the Irish, like they were not white, you know, Mm -hmm. 150 years ago, but became white. Um, and many of like, all of us are, um, capable of practicing the assimilation, right. Um, and giving up some piece of our identity in order to, to be part of, it's like, I said this to some folks yesterday. I was like, I'm like, whiteness is like the Borg. Mm -hmm. Um, if you watch Star Trek (laughs) or watch that, um, it is, it's about assimilation. It is about like losing, (laughs) you know, who you are to become part of this thing that then is just like trying to uh, colonize everything. My great grandmother came to, um, came to America when she was seven years old. Anunziata Nucci was her name. And the first day she went to school, the teacher asked her, what is your name? She said, Anunziata. She said, that's far too complicated. I'm going to call you Nancy. And from then on, that was her name. Right. So I sit with that as one tiny, tiny little microcosm of how much my family lost and I am a white woman to then think on a much broader scale about how much culture we have collectively lost because of the fact that we have centered whiteness in our culture. And part of what happened for Black folks, which is why there's it's not equivalent, right, is my Black identity is largely because, I mean, I know that on my, you know, dad's side, we're Jamaican, but like Jamaica was part of the transatlantic slave trade as well. So, you know, I don't know what part of Africa um, my people are from. But part of what enslaved folks did was come here and maintain culture. As much as um, white folks were trying to prevent black people from speaking their languages, from practicing customs. Like we took, we, I mean, put, you know, hiding seeds in our braids, like the drums, like there are so many things that black folks um, fought to maintain of culture and then created American culture. So for us, black identity is, is like rich with, a multiplicity of culture. 
Um, we have food ways, we have ritual, we have like all of these things that we have figured out how to maintain um, despite being stolen from our home. And that's part of why I'm like, whiteness is not the same thing. Like, it's not the opposite of blackness. It's not, it's not like an equivalent. They are not the same thing. Um, because blackness as an identity is not a, an identity that is about assimilation. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's, it is, it is like the diversity of blackness is massive. I mean, I have this, like, you know, my little white passing son and my father who was like a deeply dark man right like with like the and that's just skin color like then there's all of there's like there's the diaspora right natalie and i both have the west indian bit there is the southern part i mean there's so many things in blackness um there's a richness there and this is why you know this is why when i think about culture and how important it is for white folks to find culture for themselves and not steal it from other people but it is because like having culture is part of how we figure out like belonging right belonging is like partly it's about like being of a people um being of a place um being of ritual and of history right and for some of us like we can't there's you know like we're too far removed from our ancestral culture right like on my mom's side i know we're like part irish I have no expectation that I would go aside from the fact that I'm black. Like I have no expectation that like I would go to Ireland and be like, Oh my God, I'm home. Like these are my people. So part of it is that we white folks need to do the work, which is painful and hard, but of like figuring out how to create culture. And one of the things I think about when it comes to anti-racism is that People who are actively white supremacists have culture. They have music, they have lexicon, they have um, ritual, they have clothing they wear, they have you know ways they bury their dead, they have ways of gathering, and they are doing this collectively. I'm like, white folks who are doing anti-racist work need to be creating a culture of anti-racism. And I think, I feel like the only one that I'm aware of was like the hardcore music that came out of DC in like the eighties. Um, there was like this anti-racist um, like flavor to it. And as it spread across kind of the East coast, there was like anti-racist hardcore musicians who are white. Um, I'm like, y'all like, I don't know what it looks like, but I'm just like, that is what I'm, I'm so excited about is for white folks to start to create um, a culture of anti-racism that allows them to uh, hold a culture, right, that is not about white supremacy. And I think in that is where white people begin to understand the tremendous joy that exists in doing anti-racist work. Because I think for so many white people, it is painful and uncomfortable and exhausting and it's not that it's not going to be those things but i think if you can't find the joy in it that you're missing out and i think that the joy has to come from doing that work with other people and building culture all around it right right so i don't know how we've gotten this far but we're coming on to an hour <laughs> and we have a half an hour show and we're gonna we're gonna play the whole thing um <laughs> Mia, I cannot, I cannot say how, 
I can't even find the words to express how much I have just loved being in this space with you and getting to hear your voice again and listen to you again. I have missed you all of these years. Mm. And Natalie, thank you so much as well for, for joining today and being part of this important conversation. I appreciate you both so much. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another fantastic conversation here on Mission Forward. If you enjoyed what you heard today and you're taking away something tangible to apply to your work, let me know. Leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast or drop me an email at carrie at mission.partners. We are getting ready to tee up the next season of Mission Forward as well. So if you have a great topic you'd like to bring to us or you've got a guest you'd like to suggest, send me an email on that as well. This is Carrie Fox. This is Mission Forward. And we look forward to seeing you next time.